Our scripture reading is evening we'll from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 19, found on page 1083. The third. So John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him up to you, so that he may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again, and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gaza. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! So they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called the Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what have I written? I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part of every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother, and the disciple who he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So far, the reading of John chapter 19. Dear friends, you all know that the Lord Jesus would often take things from society, that he would take things that happened in the culture, in the society, habits, practices, and he would use them as illustrations of the truth of the kingdom of God. Behold the soul of the soul, says Jesus. Right? And then he proceeds to make spiritual teaching upon that picture of the soul of soul. And he compares the kingdom of God to a man that has his finish. And many other things, like Jesus was always finding things in society and in culture that he could use as illustrations, as teaching tools to teach something about the kingdom of God. Now Paul was the same way. Paul also did that. And one of the things that we see, or one of the things that Paul and Jesus as well would have seen in Roman society, and you would have seen it too if you had been there, it was very common, was this practice of slaves buying their freedom. You know that there were many, many slaves in the Roman Empire. There were, there were more slaves than, than free people in the, in the Roman Empire. And especially in the city of Rome. Because uh, you know that the, the, the whole uh, Roman Empire was built up right, by conquering other countries and enslaving peoples. So many, many slaves. Well, occasionally these slaves would come to a point in their life where they were able to purchase their freedom. And to do that, they had to pay a price. They had to go before a judge. And the price had to be paid. And then they were given their freedom. They were then made citizens of the Roman Empire. Now, Paul and Jesus both, they looked at that and they said, now that's an illustration. That is a, a teaching moment, maybe we would say. This is something that people can use, that we can use to help them understand the saving work of God. You know that Paul even encouraged slaves, right, to, to do this. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 21, Paul actually says this. He says, to the slaves, he says, uh, were you called? In other words, were you called to be a Christian? While a slave, do not worry about it. In other words, don't worry about being a slave. You're, you're not any less a Christian because you're a slave. But if you are able also to become free, rather than that. You see that Paul even recognizes there. If you're a slave, you have the opportunity to purchase your freedom or to get your freedom anyway. Take advantage of it. So Paul and Jesus before him, they saw this, 
this, this reality of slaves buying their freedom, and they, they took hold of that to teach about the saving grace of God. Not in the past few weeks, as we are now, we are thinking about the death of Christ. We're thinking about the death of Jesus. Now, what does it mean? How should we think about the death of Jesus? That's a question on our mind. We don't want to think about the death of Jesus, do we? We want to think about it in a way that God would have us to do so. There are people who delude themselves with all kinds of theories about what the death of Jesus meant. But we want to stand on the truth of God. Our congregation, here now is a picture that Jesus himself and Paul later gives to us and says, This is how to think about the death of Jesus. This is how you should think about the death of Jesus. And so my text this evening, I read the account from John, but my text actually comes from Matthew this evening. A very well-known verse, Matthew 20 and verse 28. Where we read Matthew 20 and verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's our text to see. Now, in the first place, let's look at the context. Because it's always interesting to me, congregation, how much theology there is in sort of the offhand remarks that the biblical authors make. Because if you look at Matthew 20, and you look at uh, verse 20, and you can even see that the subject given us there in the Bible is preferment ask. Because here you have the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that would have been James and John. They come to Jesus with their sons. She bows down and she makes this request. And she says, give us command, verse 21, that my two sons might have these places of honor in your kingdom. Perhaps one of you sit on your right hand and one on your left. Oh, congregation, how many times have we seen these people cannot understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom? No matter how hard it seems that Jesus teaches the true nature of his kingdom, that the, 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 the Jewish people are not able, it seems, even amongst his own disciples, to grasp the fact that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. There's no right hand or left hand. There's no prime minister. There's no cabinet. There's no positions of importance. Well, actually, there are positions of importance. Later, Jesus will take a child, right? Put the child in and say, this is the most important one, right? Or the one who's your servant, the one who's your slave is the most important one. Well, the mother of Zebedee, she doesn't understand this. And then, uh, as Jesus says in verse 22, do you know what you're asking? Like he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? And, and, and uh, the appalling answer, we are able. You see, just the appalling ignorance of Jesus' disciples. Even at this late hour, even at the end of Jesus' ministry, they still make this astounding claim, yes, we can drink the cup that you're about to drink. Well, Jesus now is going to teach them that the positions, the greatest person, the position of greatness in Jesus' kingdom is the person who is most willing to serve. Right? That's what he 
talks about the Gentiles, especially the Romans, they want power. The greatest Roman is the man who has the greatest power and the greatest wealth. But in the kingdom of Jesus, it is not this way. Verse 26, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And then we have this, again, that's why I call it offhand remark. I don't even know. I don't mean to spare the remark, remark at all. But it really is that Jesus is just making a, 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 a closing statement, as it were, as he, as he teaches these disciples of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And he says, he points to himself. He says, just as the Son of Man came not to serve, I'm sorry, not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life a ransom for many. Now, of course, we, many years later, we latch onto that last statement, right? Because that's such a beautiful statement that Jesus gives us for understanding the purpose of his own death. And at a time of passion, when we want to think about Jesus' death, right there we find it, right from the mouth of Jesus himself. This is how you want to think about my death. And that's why we prize these words so highly, even though really, in the context itself, Jesus was sort of just giving a reason, isn't he, for his larger point. So that's the context. But let's look at, at this, these verses then, and I mean the verse really just that last clause, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the ransom. When we look at that word ransom, we want to know what is the meaning of that word ransom? And so naturally, we want to let the scripture explain scripture. So we go, we pull our concordance, and uh, there's nothing uh, so very difficult about this congregation. I know people often think that preachers have some kind of secret magic by which they are able to know the words of God. It's not true. I have the same tools available to me that are available to you, right? And we open up the word of God, and we pray for the light of the Spirit of us. And we look at the other uses of these words in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 21, we find this word, Exodus 21 and verse 30, where we have the uh, instance here of an ox who killed somebody. He gored someone to death. And then uh, the, the instruction given in uh, Exodus 21 and verse 29 is that uh, if the ox was in the habit of doing and its owner has been wounded, yet he does not confine it, and he doesn't take care of it, to protect people from this dangerous ox. And that ox kills him every woman, and the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. So now if the person, if the family of the deceased, the man who was killed, says, well, we won't require that the owner be put to death, but we will require a ransom. Then that family would set a price, and that man, that woman, who was negligent and didn't take care to protect people from his dangerous bull, could pay that price. And then he would be, and again, the language of scripture is he would be redeemed. And so redemption, redeemed, is simply the, the, simply the concept of being set free by the payment of a price. And the word ransom then is what that price is. A ransom is the price you pay to be set free. Now in this case, from capital punishment. Because the owner was God. But if the family of the deceased is merciful, and they say, we will allow you to be, uh, you know, to, to keep your life, but you must pay a ransom, then that the, the Mosaic law allowed that. That man could be 
price set by the thing. And when that took place, then we would say that man was redeemed. That's important to kind of understand the vocabulary here, isn't it? Redemption, redeemed, means to be set free by the paying of a price. Now if we look at Isaiah 45 and verse 13. We see it over again. Isaiah 45 verse 13. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his way smooth. He will build my city and let my exiles go free. Without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now that word payment there is the word ransom. So think of it now, right? The exiles are in Babylon. They are in captivity. They are not in the promised land. But now King Cyrus, God is going to raise him up. And this was many years before Cyrus even ever came into existence. It was even war. But God now promises that Cyrus will come. God will raise him up. He will build my city. He will let my exiles go free without payment. The usual practice was that if you were going to be set free, you had to make the payment. You had to pay the ransom. Once you paid the ransom, you were allowed to go free. But now Cyrus is going to do something under this. He's going to let the exiles go free out of that one by paying the ransom. So what we're going to do in the scripture, what, this, what it means to, to be ransomed. And then last, Proverbs 13 and verse 8. Proverbs 13 and verse 8. The ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. Now, it's kind of difficult to understand it, but very likely what it's saying there is that a, a, a wealthy man can buy his way out of the problem. Right? The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. He can, he can pay his way to get free from whatever problem, typically a legal problem that he's in. But the poor has no such option open to him. He hears no rebuke. Well, again, you see what the word ransom means there. Now, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, again, point to that picture. And in, in their own context, in the Roman context, it was especially the context of slavery. People buying their way out of slavery. And so Jesus says in our text here, in Matthew uh, 20, verse 28, that his life is a ransom. He came to give his life a ransom. For men. And so when we read that word ransom then, we read price. He gave his life as a price. Now the Apostle Paul uses this, in fact the Apostle Paul uses this language much more. The Apostle Paul loves this language. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, you are bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 7, when he, one chapter later, he says again, you are bought with a price. So this congregation then is how Jesus wants us to think about his death. This should guide our thinking in these passages when we think of the death of Jesus. And I have four truths then that I want to highlight in this text, in these words. And the first truth, the first truth is this. Jesus did not come for himself. Now we know, we talked about this in the past, that Jesus came having been sent from his father. In fact, we read those words, 
this morning in this morning's text. In John 12, verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. And in verse 49, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment so I know what to say and what to speak. So Jesus did not come on a mission. He was not sent by himself. He did not come on his own mission. He was sent by the Father. But he also did come to this earth to do something for his own advantage. He did not come to do something for himself. He came to do something for others. And we also read that uh, in our text uh, this, uh, this morning. That also was in our text. This morning, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Again, we see very explicitly, right, that Jesus did not come for his own benefit, for his own advantage. He was sent by his Father, and he came to save or to bring salvation to the world. That in the first place is the truth that we clearly see in this text. He came to serve. To serve, to do something for others. Now the second truth. The second truth that we see. He came to pay a price. This is the second truth that we see in the scripture. He came to pay a price. He came to give his life a ransom for many, or a price for many. And what is the price? What is the price that Jesus gave? His life. And to give his life a ransom. His life is the price that he had to pay. The Apostle Peter says so clearly, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you are not redeemed, there it is, redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, and under silver and gold was the price, from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. All this plan that Christ would come took was planned long in the ages of eternity past. He was the unblemished and spotless lamb. So he came to pay for Jesus in the first place did not come for himself. In the second place, he came to pay for us his own life. And in the third place, we read just those two words. For many. Congregation, there are, there are some words in Scripture that are so heavy and packed with meaning. And you cannot get deeper than these words. For many. For many. And in the first place, you have that preposition for. And in the scripture, the original language, that is a very unique preposition. Because the word for can mean for the advantage of, right? Like if I, if, if I came and mowed your lawn for you, that would be something to your advantage. It would be something I did for you, right? But that's not the preposition here. This is the preposition in the place of. For example, if you were going to serve in the nursery uh, this morning, and you weren't able to do it for some reason. You would get a substitute. Somebody would take your place in the nursery and serve for you. 
That's the word for here. It's a very specific word. It means in the place of, instead of. It, it, the idea here is substitution. So the third truth that we have here is that he came in the place of. And the true concept is substitutionary. Substitutionary atonement. Christ is a substitute. He did not come to be served, not for himself, but he came to serve, to serve others. And how does he do that? By taking their place. He pays the price, and the price is own money. He steps into their place, and gives his life in their place. And then the fourth place, the fourth truth that I'll highlight for you this evening from this text is that this is for many. For many. Not for all. Right? The word is many here. And you know from other, especially in the Gospel of John, right? We know that Jesus was sent on a mission to this earth to save those whom the Father had given him. Those whom the Father has given him. Jesus talks about that many times throughout the Gospel of John especially. These are the ones he gave his life as a price, as a substitute. They deserve to die, but he stepped in their place, and he died, and he paid the price for their sin. So, on behalf of, or in place of, many. So those four truths. He did not come for himself. He came to pay a price. It was substitutionary. It was in the place of. And fourth, it was for many. For those who believe in him. Well, congregation, let us make some points of application on these thoughts and on this theology that is given us in this tiny little clause in Scripture. So rich with meaning. And in the first case, uh, the first place, I want us to understand these terms. These are important terms. You will have heard the term substitutionary already. Many times you will hear the term vicarious. Vicarious. Again, a theological term that just means substitute. Vicarious means substitutionary. Sometimes you will hear the word penal. P-E-N-A-L. Again, that's a word we're familiar with in the modern vocabulary. The penal code, the law code. Penal has to do with punishment. So that it was substitutionary, that's vicarious or, or substitutionary atonement. But it was also penal in the sense that it was a punishment. That Jesus was really suffering punishment, not for his own guilt, of course, but for the guilt of others. But these are important terms. And you know, it's, 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 it's always noteworthy that to me that when churches, when seminaries begin to drift away from the teaching of Scripture, that we begin to hear less and less of substitutionary, penal atonement. We begin to hear less and less of it. When I was at Western Theological Seminary in Hall, Michigan, this is an also forgotten concept. Maybe it's not the concept of congregation that, that flatters us so much, but it's at the very heart of the gospel of Christ. People would love to hear about Jesus as an example for us to follow, how we serve the poor, how we minister to the need, and that's wonderful. I have nothing against that, right? But when we come to the heart of the gospel, we are talking about Jesus in our place. Jesus, our substitute. And if 
sure that they're drifting from the word of God. They're going to take you back to congregation in these passionate ways. How are we to think of the death of Jesus? Well, Jesus himself teaches us how to think of it. Think of my death as a slave being set free from slavery. And my death, my life is the price paid so that you can be set free from the curse of the law, from the slavery that you're under. Well, congregation, in the second place then, maybe this is why the truth of the substitutionary atonement is so disagreeable to us. Do you remember Stephen in Acts 7 when he was arrested and he was dragged before the Sanhedrin to give an account of his preaching? And he goes through a long sermon. It's all about chapter 7 in the book of Acts. And when he comes to the close of that sermon, he speaks these this astounding, these astounding words. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and spirit are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Imagine you saying this to the very supreme court of Jewish religion, the Savior. And then he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You killed the Messiah. You nailed him to a cross. So Stephen addresses the Sanhedrin, the congregation, so God addresses you this evening. You crucified the Lord of glory. I crucified, this preacher crucified the Lord of glory. Our congregation, let that sink in for a minute. That the King of heaven, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Savior of the world came to this world preaching forgiveness, preaching grace and mercy for lost people. And your sins nailed him to the cross. And that's why I'm entitled the second point, shame. Because it's appropriate to feel shame in congregation in these weeks, knowing that we were the murderers, the crucifiers of Jesus Christ. And I put this quote in the notes there because this is this is from an old old book several hundred years old but it's so powerful Isaac Ambrose wrote a book called Looking Unto Jesus would you read this with me if you have a note before you Christians would not your hearts rise against him that should kill their father mother brother wife husband dearest relations in all the world over that house of your hearts and souls rise against sin. Surely your sin it was that murdered Christ, that killed him, who is instead of all relations, who is a thousand, thousand times dearer to you than father, mother, husband, child, or whomsoever. One thought of this should, one thought of this should, he thinks, be enough to make you say as Job did, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Oh, what is that cross on the back of Christ? My sins. 
puts a nail in the right hand and that other in the left hand of Christ, my sins? Or what is that spear in the side of Christ, my sins? What are those nails and wounds in the feet of Christ, my sins? With a spiritual eye, I see no other engine or no other creature tormenting Christ. No other pilot. Herod, Annas, Caiaphas condemning Christ. No other soldiers, officers, Jews, or Gentiles doing execution on Christ, but only sin. My sins, my sins, my sins. You see what he's saying there to us this evening, congregation? That when we see the death of Christ, the way Jesus would have us to see it, when we see it with the eye of faith, we don't see Pilate. We don't see Annas or Caiaphas. We don't see Roman soldiers. We see me. We see me. My sin driving those thorns into his head. My sin driving those nails into his arms and feet. We become the one who crucified the Lord of glory. Congregation, how would you receive it this evening if Stephen here is a hundred times better and braver preacher than I am will be? Saying, You crucified the Lord of glory. You crucified your own king. But that's the truth, congregation. That's the truth. Not Pilate, not Herod, not Annas, not Caiaphas. Our sins put him there. Our sins made it necessary for him to come to this cursed earth and to die in our place. That's the preaching, congregation, of substitutionary atonement. And that's why it's such a disagreeable truth to so many in our day. Because it puts the nails and the hammer in our hand. We crucify the Lord of glory. Our sins put him there. Well, we would rather not talk about that, would we? congregation may not be sold in this assembly. But may we face the fact head on that we crucify the Lord of glory. Isn't it odd? Isn't it paradoxical that we turn from this point on shame to the third point, salvation? That this very act of our sins nailing Christ to the cross is what delivers us from sin. And what sets us free from it. So that even as we, we bow our head in horror and shame at what we did to the Lord of the Lord, that we can turn around in the second place and rejoice in the forgiveness that now we can receive because Christ took our place there where we should have been nailed. He was nailed. And when we should have been condemned to that, He was condemned to that. So that we can be set free. He gave His life as a ransom to set us free from the curse of the law that would have come down upon our head and crushed us. And last week we talked about grass. Remember that was the truth also that we saw in the it kind of picture illustrated for us in the light and the release of Barabbas that when the executioner came to the prison when the doors were flung open and Barabbas had every reason to think that now he finally would meet the dreaded end and he'd be nailed to that cross and he would suffer for hours and hours until he bled and finally expired in pain and suffering and pain. And instead, here's from the executioner. chains were taken off his arms. The irons are taken off his legs. And he lost a free man. 
Oh, that's the wonder of the gospel coming. Shame, yes, will let our sins get to Christ. But that death brings us salvation. Sets us free from the cross that we deserve. That's why the psalmist can rejoice. As far as the east from the west is distant, so far as he removed our sins from us. That's also the teaching of our catechism. You can find that in the very first question and answer of the catechism. This is a picture that the catechism, our instructor, gives us in the very first question and answer. He says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the first answer is what? You should have lost my heart to know. That I am not my own. I am not my own. But belong. I'm a slave. I've been bought. I've been purchased by another master. Body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that He has fully paid. Where have we heard that before? He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. Jesus' life is that ransom price that was paid for our liberation and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. You see in our congregation how even the instructors of our, our, the authors of our catechism See that truth that Jesus gave us in those words that Paul later expands. That Christ's life is our ransom and therefore our salvation. And sets us free from the tyranny of the devil. So that we can walk in liberty as a bond slave of Christ. What a blessed truth that is congregation. And never will it be more precious and more valuable to us that on our dying day, that when we stand before the great white throne of the judgment seat of Christ, and we see the judge, we see his perfect holiness, we see his perfect justice, and we feel at that moment our own guilt and our own sin, at that congregation, we can point, we can say, I am all the Christ. You can talk to the Christ. That's the only thing, congregation, that will bring you through the gates of the kingdom of heaven. The only thing. No matter how lost a sinner we are, but if we can stand before that judgment seat and say, Lord, I'm bought with a price. I'm bought with a price. Not a price of silver and gold, but a price of blood. The price of this life of your own son. Lord Jesus Christ. Now, congregation, that is an argument that we say that. That is an argument that God will accept. That is the reason why the gates of heaven will open. And there's no other reason. There's no other ground that you can stand on when you stand before that holy white throne of Jesus Christ. I pray, congregation, that that argument would be in our hands for other day. And then we can point to it with gladness, with confidence. I walk with the price. May our praise be for his name's sake. Shall we pray?
friends this, this evening to rejoice in and help us to know that all our salvation depends upon that Christ alone. That we have no other meaning on. We have no other reason. We can only point to that Christ. Only point to the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that that word is sufficient to save us from all our sins. To cleanse us from all righteousness. And to open the gates of heaven. So that on our dying day, we can have hope. Lord, we know that there are some in our congregation. Perhaps not gathered with us this evening. Perhaps they are gathered with us this evening. But whatever it may be, we can be only a few steps from death. Hope not grant that we might take fast hold of the cross of Jesus Christ. We might take fast hold of this ransom, this price, and know that it can pay all our debts, all the guilt that we owe. And bring us to be reconciled to you. Lord, please remember saying, as we go into sleep, I pray about that our meditation would be upon these things. That we would take off the cross of Christ with great joy. Yes, with some shame, no doubt, but with great gladness, knowing that this shame is our salvation. Lord, I do pray that we would bring us together again on Friday, as we have an opportunity once again to hear this glorious gospel. Lord, make us to love to sit under the preaching of this word. And we pray for all your service, Lord, who will labor in the gospel this Friday, and also be on Easter. Bless them, Lord, give them also the taste of the matters they handle. And may your name be glorified from this time forth and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.